If they mess up, which we often do as humans, they're not kicked out or fired from treatment. So, so many treatment modalities, if you fall off the wagon or relapse, you're kicked out. That's not how we treat people with other chronic conditions. Somebody, you know, goes into diabetic shock. We're not like you can't come back into into treatment. Um, yet we do it for people who have a substance use disorder. Welcome to the Other Eighty. I'm Claudia Williams. This podcast is about how we can build health in America beyond medical care. Only about twenty percent of overall health. It's determined by traditional medical services. We are here to talk about the other 80%, the food we eat, where we live, and our relationships with each other. In 2017, nearly half of Americans, 46%, said they had a family member or close friend who's been addicted to drugs. That was three years before the pandemic. It was five years before the current peak of the opioid crisis. Now, that number is certainly higher. That means half of the country, probably more, knows that when you have a loved one with an addiction, it's really hard to know where to turn. Treatments are expensive and effective or they're simply not available. When we layer on mental health issues or a serious health problem or a lack of food and safe housing, the situation gets even worse. So it's not surprising, although it's still incredibly disturbing, that there's a 94% gap in treatment. That means only 6% of people with a substance use disorder are receiving the help they need. It's this gap that our guest, Corbin Petro, thinks about every day and is looking to close. She's the CEO and co-founder of Eleanor Health, which provides evidence-based whole-person care for people with substance use disorders and mental health needs. Corbin shares her advice for Medicaid founders Eleanor Health's experience closing equity gaps, and why she thinks addiction is a treatable chronic condition. So please welcome Corbin Petro to The Other 80. Well, welcome to The Other 80. It's so great to have you on. And um, broadly, this podcast is highlighting the exciting, important work going on around whole person health models, particularly in Medicaid, but not just in Medicaid. And that has a lot of layers uh, to it. It has obviously policy layers, implementation layers, um, both plans and and companies like yours. But also there's some threads that run across it, particularly mental health and substance use treatment that I think a lot of the examples have come back to the importance of really figuring out models of care and approaches to implement that are meeting people where they are. There's been so much attention and focus on folks in the Medicare Advantage market, but the Medicaid market, I think, has some challenges, but also some opportunities that are quite um, unique. That was true a year ago, but now we have, I think, two additional challenges, one being the overall slowing of the financial market, and the second being a fairly large disruption in the enrollment due to Medicaid redetermination and other policy changes. So I guess I'd like to just have you sit in the seat of advisor to other people um, in this market as founders. Uh, what advice would you give them about how to be effective at growing a company, scaling a company, and bringing a return to investors? Yeah. 
So I think there's a ton of opportunity for impact in Medicaid. You know, I couldn't be more bullish on Medicaid just as as a market segment. Um, I think there's been a lack of investment because of the reimbursement rates are low. And so I think for any entrepreneur that's looking to be in the space, it behooves them to make sure that the outcomes that they deliver um, and the ROI, right? So the outcomes that they deliver both for the patient and any other stakeholders who, who they're selling into, that those outcomes are, are clear, that they're proven, and that they're meeting a, a market need. I think on the reimbursement side, this is where there's often not investment here because, the, you know, the reimbursement, the, the traditional fee-for-service reimbursement for Medicaid is, is quite low compared to commercial and, and Medicare segments. But the opportunity to improve the total cost of care, the opportunity to improve quality is, is really high. And so if you can curate and create a, uh, a payment model that, that gives you some upside value for the outcomes that, that you're achieving, I think there's great opportunity. I think there's huge challenges in Medicaid. I wish it was an easier market to break into. I wish that the regulatory environment made it so you didn't have to learn about 50 different Medicaids, right? The reality is, is that if you're an entrepreneur and you're creating a healthcare product or service, it's, it's a lot easier to launch a cash pay product. Um, it just is. And I wish that wasn't the case because it does mean that you often have to have a, a bit of a slower road to get to reimbursement and the outcomes, but it's absolutely worth it um, in the end because the impact that you can have, and I think it's just a, a great opportunity. So I guess my advice is consider the market, but also get to get to know the market. Don't just look at the market as a, as a size um, because it's more than just covering a, a huge portion of the United States. There are complexities, there are unique pieces um, to each and every state and, and the Medicaid segment. Aditi Malik, who's the chief medical officer for Medicaid and CHIP at CMS, came on recently and talked about, and I think you will hear about this from the Eleanor Health side, is that this is not an area where a pure technology play is going to be successful. It needs to be integrated with human touch both in terms of the way um, you approach the consumer, but also all the community players, whether those are providers or community-based organizations that have always been in the camp of serving those folks. And if you kind of try to do an end run around that, it's just not going to be successful. We recently had Tom Insel on the show, and Tom is a, an interesting guy. He was the former head of NIMH, and has gone on to found and work in a, a variety of companies and startups. And he, uh, we were kind of doing a broad profile of mental health. And one of the topics we touched on was substance use disorders and the trends um, going on there. And there are many stats that I think are quite sobering. I, opioid deaths having doubled and the rate of um, treatment with effective treatments as low as 11% um, for folks with an opioid use disorder. If you could just give a kind of landscape analysis, what is the scope of the issue? What are the trends that you're seeing? What are the kinds of treatments that are proven to work? And what are some of the things that honestly are not that effective that are still quite persistent in the world? And we'll get into your model as the kind of way to address that. But let's first give listeners a sense of that landscape. Yeah, well... 
Um, in terms of just the, the scope, you know, the latest SAMHSA report said that there's 46 million Americans who meet the, you know, diagnostic criteria for a substance use disorder. And that goes across all substances, alcohol, marijuana, which we know are both legal substances as well as illegal substances, as well as pills that are prescribed and misused. So it goes across all of those, but 46 million Americans, um, which is, which is a big, a big number. And what we, what we see in the treatment landscape is that it crosses demographic lines. It affects all swaths of, of the United States. Um, the, the care delivery models are pretty archaic, most of them not based in evidence. They are fragmented and, and most people don't know where to find care. And so what we see is there's a, a 94% treatment gap. So 94% of people who have a diagnosis are not getting treatment at, at any given time. Um, and so the question is always why? Why are they not getting treatment? Why are people not getting treatment? For a long time, we said it's access. It must be access. And so there were a lot of different point solutions that came out to create access. Well, we know access is part of it, but it's not all of it. It's, um, it's other things besides access. It's um, stigma. So people who have a substance use disorder, that may not be something that they're currently associating with. They may have it in, they may be, may be diagnosed with it, but they may be more focused on the social drivers that are impacting their lives or the mental health conditions that, that underlie most people who have a substance use disorder. And so what we find is just this, this large treatment gap for people with a substance use disorder. We know that these populations are complex. You know, as I said, you know, many have about 80% have an underlying mental health condition. About 70% have another physical comorbidity. And they're not well connected with primary care. When I launched Eleanor in 2019, I put out just a statement on LinkedIn. And I think the overdose deaths have doubled since then. We treat addiction as a chronic condition. It historically has been treated in very acute settings. And I think there's there's a lot of hope uh, for people. I think some of the statistics, I think, undermine um, how effective treatment can be. I think we see overdose deaths and we think, oh, you know, this, this is going to be a downward spiral. But um, it's, it's, you know, addiction is a very, you know, it's a very treatable chronic condition. What are some of the treatments that are incredibly effective? Yeah. So, I mean, for, for many substances, there's FDA approved medication. Um, so there has been for some time been methadone, um, but there's buprenorphine, suboxone, um, Vivitrol. Uh, there's, there's a variety of medications that support um, substance use disorders. There's a, there's a growing evidence base around treating some of the underlying mental health conditions, those co-occurring mental health conditions, and how that's critical to to improving uh, one's one's path in recovery. I think what we see is that recovery paths are very personalized and very unique. And so um, creating a care, a care plan that identifies what's important to the member or the patient and, and putting together the different evidence-based practices. So it's not just MAT, for example, or just the medication. It's making sure that that goes hand in hand with a therapeutic pathway, whether that's a peer, somebody who has a lived experience that can relate to somebody, whether that's a therapist, making sure that the underlying conditions that may be barriers to or exacerbating that substance use disorder are treated. So that's sort of been our experience is looking at how to treat addiction as a chronic condition with long-term care plans and care pathways. 
let's talk about Eleanor Health. Given that kind of background and given the profile you've given of Medicaid entrepreneurship, what is your model of care? Tell us about where you are right now in your implementation, your, your build out. What's the size of the population you're working with? Yeah. So, I mean, as, as we've talked about Eleanor Health, we treat people um, who are affected by substance use disorder. Um, we address the whole person. And so we really try to both surface and address the other comorbidities that so often exist. So we treat all co-occurring mental health conditions, including serious and persistent mental illness that, that often sit side by side with, with substance use disorder. Um, we provide a really comprehensive care model that's psychiatry-led. So my co-founder, we talked about Dr. Nzinga Harrison, um, helped develop um, the care model, which she's a psychiatrist, so it's very psychiatry-led. Um, we address all of the medication management that, that a person may have. So it's really trying to, under one umbrella, address um, all of the needs that go side by side with a substance use disorder. So that's medication, that's psychiatry, therapy, peer support, nurse care management. It's a very comprehensive model. Um, how we go to market is we, we partner with payers. So we're a value-based provider. We're very focused on the outcomes that we're able to achieve. Outcomes both for the member, so improvements in their, their life, improvements in anxiety, depression, recovery capital. Um, these are all different things that we measure and track really closely. For the health plan, we um, reduce total cost of care, reduce ED and inpatient. It makes sense, right? A person is going to the emergency room, um, not getting their needs met for a substance use disorder. If you get them into care, into a program that sees them for who they are, first addresses what matters to them. It might be their social drivers. They might not be going to treatment because they need childcare or they need transportation. So it's addressing those barriers creating meaning and purpose in their lives and making sure that you create that, that long-term recovery path where if they mess up, which we often do as humans, they're not kicked out or fired from treatment. So, so many treatment modalities, if you fall off the wagon or relapse, you're kicked out. That's not how we treat people with other chronic conditions like diabetes. We would never, somebody goes into diabetic shock, we're not like, you can't come back into, into treatment. Um, yet we do it for people who have a substance use disorder. And so that's our model. It's, it's, it's comprehensive in that way. Again, we partner with payers. So we partner in a, in a couple ways, different value-based um, reimbursement structures. We do take risks. So we do take some downside risk on, you know, either at the population level or um, at the care level, um, either based on uh, total cost of care or meeting quality metrics. We think outcomes really matter, and we, we think that you can quantify them in this space. We were founded in 2019. We're in seven states. As I mentioned, we go, you know, we go deep into the communities that we serve. Um, we have about 35 clinics. Uh, our clinics are not the only place where we deliver care. So we deliver care in our clinics. We go out into patients' homes. We deliver care through our virtual and digital platform. Um, again, really focused on meeting our community members where they are and how they want to engage with us. I think you bring a very sophisticated data and analytics, but also value-based payment perspective to this work. And we've had a lot of clinician leaders on the show to talk about the model of care. And it's, I think, really exciting to have you on to talk about the magic behind the business structure and how that works. 
I'd like to kind of walk into the history of how you've taken value-based payments and what the structure of that is. But first, I'm guessing you had a first conversation with a plan where you laid out some data and evidence and you said, listen, here's our population, here's the impact we've had, and here's why you should pay us differently. Can you take us back to that conversation? What did you show them? What convinced them that this was a good bet to make when this is not at all the way they've been thinking about paying for this care? Yeah, this is, I mean, this is great advice for entrepreneurs too, where it's sometimes you have to take, you know, a less than ideal reimbursement structure in order to prove your clinical outcomes. And so that's what we did in the first two years. We did have a couple um, bundled reimbursement structures. So for those early customers who bought in on a sort of case rate uh, reimbursement structure, a lot of it was the evidence that's just based in the literature where it said, you know, it says, really important to create access points very quickly. Well, that's not free. Create care pathways that include peer support, care coordination, often things that aren't reimbursed. And so it was using those pieces of literature. Later, when we had our own outcomes, for for payers, what was really compelling was the data, the third-party data that we were able to show on reductions in ED and inpatient utilization. So again, if if you picture somebody who is struggling um, with a substance use disorder. Let's say it's somebody with a substance use disorder, alcohol use disorder, and is, is also diabetic. Um, well, every time they, they drink alcohol, they're gonna exacerbate their diabetes and they might go to the emergency room because of that underlying physical health condition. So it might not even surface in the emergency room as a substance use disorder as the root cause, but it absolutely is. And so we see a lot of overutilization of ED and inpatient stays for folks who aren't managing their substance use disorder. And so we immediately see when we bring those folks into care that that they're they're stabilized and they're not going to the emergency room anymore. And so we see, you know, a 50% reduction in the first 90 days in ED and inpatient utilization for our patients. And now this is, you know, this is incredibly statistically significant over many thousands of members. In the early days, it was less statistically significant, but still incredibly compelling. You try to give a payer a reason why to to do this. For Medicaid plans, it's been around those reductions in total cost of care, but also just the imperative that they see in in the populations that, that that they serve. So it's it was some of those early pieces of data for health plans, those ED and inpatient utilization reductions were really some of the compelling pieces. Of course, on the clinical side, they care about anxiety, depression, all those measures that we could show. But it's important to be able to show that ROI with the ED and inpatient. And then, you know, as HEDIS has evolved over the past four years, and now we have a number of HEDIS and follow-up measures that are relevant to the population that we serve, we're able to show um, impact on those measures as well, which this is always important to, to health plan customers. So most Medicaid plans um, in 2023 and 2024 are really starting to look at those their follow-up measures. So seven and 30-day follow-up measures for HEDIS for somebody who has been in the emergency room in the hospital for, for a, a substance use disorder or for a mental health reason. So getting those folks into care at those seven and 30-day intervals um, is starting to be something that's that uh, Medicaid, state Medicaid, agencies are either having sort of an incentive or a penalty around. 
When you look at the markets, you mentioned that it's 50 different markets and different conditions and some of the but some of the plans you're working with are national or or across multiple states. What are some of the things you look for to determine whether a given geographic market might be a good place to work? It's a really interesting question and it's evolved over the past couple of years um, and part of it is, you know, you go into a market and you get frustrated with some component of that market and you think I'll never do that again. Um, so first, first and foremost, we know that, uh, there's a need everywhere for the most part. Um, the different, there's different reimbursement structures for different states. So there are some states that reimburse for, for more services that we provide. Um, although we, we tend to shy away from any fee for service reimbursement, having that fee for service reimbursement there for our peers, for care coordination, for nurse care management, some of our wrap services, um, can be an important baseline for what it costs to, to manage these, these populations. So we look at those pieces. Um, we look at um, where, where there's a need, um, a true gap in care. So there, those two often correspond, right? So where a state isn't really reimbursing well, there's often a gap. Um, and so how do you, how do you reconcile those two things um, can be challenging. Um, we do look as well at um, Medicaid expansion, we want to go into communities and be able to serve as many people in those, those communities as we can. And we found early on in North Carolina, there was not Medicaid expansion in, in that state. And it made it really hard. We hire really mission-driven teams um, who want to be able to serve and, and be of service to their communities. And it was really challenging to have to turn away people because they didn't have a, a willingness or an ability to pay. It's so so hard for us that we we actually created a nonprofit um, to, to help create some, some, you know, ability to pay for those, for those populations. So we look at those things, we look at some of the regulatory nuances. So one of the interesting things about behavioral health is for so long, it's been separated from, you know, we've separated the brain and the body from a health insurance perspective, from a care perspective, and from a regulatory perspective. There are many states where they separate the substance use disorder, the mental health um, licensure process, from any physical health care, that just adds, it, you know, it adds complexity um, to, to getting licensed and being able to serve multiple jurisdictions, deliver that whole person care. If you have to get licensure across all of those, it makes it really challenging to, to deliver whole person care. In California, where, where you've lived, there's a county-based system that, that um, while California has been wonderful in expanding um, Medicaid to multiple different populations, reimbursing for, you know, evidence-based non-clinical interventions, the county-based structure is really challenging. So I just named a ton of different different factors that we look at. We look at all of those. We also look for a health plan partner that really wants us to be in that state. I've been thinking a lot about California and the, the county system. And it just for listeners that aren't familiar, what it means is that the plan itself doesn't have a severe mental, they have a uh, basic depression and stuff, but anyone with, uh, with a serious condition is being treated and paid for through the county system. And California has an additional challenge in that pharmacy is also carved out. And you think about it from like a startup entrepreneur perspective, right? Where you believe you have a solution that's going to meet the needs of a, a segment of the population. And instead of just having to think about your solution, you have to think about all the different pieces. It's essentially slicing up a person 
and saying, well, I want to get paid for this part of this person and this part of this person. And it's, it makes it really hard. It's almost like a, a barrier to entry for any small organization doing something really innovative. It, it almost makes it so you have to be an expert yeah. at Medicaid to go into some of those markets. I would say you do probably. (laughs) (laughs) Let's go back to your value-based payment. I was really intrigued to see that you're taking full risk for Mm -hmm. some of your lives. And I'm curious how that works, but also how big is that population? How does that work for you guys? Yeah, so we we do take risk on population. We do get put fees at risk based on our ability to impact total cost of care for those for those populations. And we do do total cost of care because what we see in this space is, as we talked about with some of the examples that I gave, when we manage the substance use disorder, we see the median inpatient go down. Um, we don't necessarily see, we do, uh, you know, at times see um, the behavioral health spend go down too, particularly if, if it's somebody who's been going to you know, a residential treatment center, for example. But if it's somebody who's been going in and out of the emergency room and it sort of presents as a physical health um, spend, we see that as the, the cost savings. And so, that, you know, we do, we do have models where um, uh, we're at risk for, you know, 10, 20, 30,000 patients. Um, and it's really, you know, end-to-end, their total costs. Does that imply that you're coordinating their physical health or simply that you're at risk for those dollars. Yes, yeah, so we absolutely coordinate. So we do have nurse practitioners and nurse care management. We're not, we're not primary care, um, but you know, we say we don't um, prescribe your, your insulin for your diabetes, but you help, we help you manage your diabetes. And so you know, 90% of people who come to us are not connected with primary care. It's a huge, huge percentage of people. And a lot of people, you know, don't use primary care the way I think, you know, in the academic sense, we dream that people are using their primary care clinician as, as the quarterback of care. Many, many folks under 65 are not using the primary care provider in that way. And we certainly see that in our work. We get people connected. So we have a very high connection rate to primary care um, to make sure that they do build that relationship over time. But we're able to to, to surface and to manage those those physical um, comorbidities within within our care model. In a world where I think Medicaid as a whole and also plans are putting more and more emphasis on deeper care management, would primary care be a natural extension of your work, or do you see that as really a separate thread? We've talked a lot about extending into into primary care. I think the reality is we haven't felt we needed to. You know, there's a lot of primary care led. Um, providers that that are out there and getting that that connection to them hasn't been challenging for us. It's probably in our longer term roadmap at some point, depending on the state too. Like there there are some states that um, feel pretty strongly about um, that integration being under one roof, where we feel like we can integrate pretty well um, without it being under under our umbrella. Previously, uh, when I reviewed some other podcasts, you had talked about most of the risk, at least the population risk, was for Medicaid plans. And I'm curious if that's still the same today, if that's shifted, if you're seeing the most growth in your risk-based payment in Medicaid. Yeah, so I think we, we do see most of our current and new Medicaid partners are most interested in our sort of total cost of care risk-based, population risk-based approach. Um, I think we see that because 
there is an emphasis on making sure that dollars are are used um, in an intelligent way and an efficient way. Um, I think obviously most MCOs, depending a little bit on the state, but most Medicaid MCOs hold the total cost of care risk. And so we're engaging in, and working with a population that has been difficult to manage. And so they're offloading some of that risk to us. Um, we see less of it in commercial plans. Most of commercial plan risk sits with employers. Uh, 80% of most um, commercial plans are ASO. So they're self-insured employers. And so we see similar, I mean, that's, that's the other thing I will say about substance use disorder. I think there is some, there is a perception that it only affects Medicaid populations and that couldn't be farther from the, from the truth. Um, you know, as I said early on, you know, substance use disorder doesn't discriminate. It impacts people. I think all of us have personal stories, um, me included, family impacted by substance use disorder impacts people's total health. Um, and so we see, we do see lower prevalence rates in the commercial population, but not insignificant um, at all to compared to the Medicaid space. Uh, there was a thread on, I think it was on LinkedIn the other day about, should we just give up on value-based care? And I think where the narrative there was this drumbeat of it's coming, it's coming, it's coming, it's going to change everything. Everyone's going to be under value-based care, like hospital CEO, beware, your model's dying. And all of us observing, especially in the health system space, that is just not true. And also observing that many of those large systems might have a a project for value-based care, <laughs> but the overall business model is not moving in that direction. And it's exciting to hear about models like yours that are succeeding at making this work and scale. But I think there's also an overall kind of fatigue with value-based care as the answer. And I'd just love to get your take on it because you're such an expert in this area. How should we be thinking about this? And is that drumbeat helpful or not? And where is it growing and where is it not? I just, I think there's a quite a bit of... Um, is that last year's idea uh, kind of energy out there? Well, so I'm, I'm one of the most bullish people on value-based care. It's something that I feel deeply passionate about. And it's more the, the fundamental underlying principle of value-based care is being reimbursed based on the outcomes that you're achieving. Who doesn't love that based, you know, instead of just the number of different services that you're providing. Value-based care can be designed wrong. We can design value-based care so that it actually increases utilization and costs in certain areas. And so I think we have to be thoughtful about making sure that we keep that North Star of let's be paid based on outcomes. Let's get the right outcomes um, and get reimbursed on, on those. I think the promise of value-based care is what makes the Medicaid space feasible for a lot of really innovative uh, companies and solutions. And so it it's disheartening, I know, to hear failures in the, in the value-based care space or that value-based care is going away. I think the belief that we should be paid based on outcomes is not going away. And so figuring out what it looks like will evolve over time. You know, I always say, like, let's make sure that we're not increasing the pie, right? Let's focus on delivering the right the right care. It's going to mean reducing in some other spot, but 
we can get better outcomes at lower cost. So I hope I hope that value-based care continues to be a thread that people pursue because it's what creates health equity. It's what it creates opportunities in Medicaid to deliver really high quality solutions that otherwise wouldn't be feasible. What I often say is if you have a bed, you're going to want to fill it. And so it is hard for hospitals to really engage wholeheartedly in value-based care because they have an infrastructure to support. I think there's increasing sophistication about understanding the underlying business motives of different parties where there's been a lot of justified excitement about primary care-led models because they only benefit from reducing the total cost of care when that total cost of care is driven by specialty care and inpatient care and ED visits, like you guys as well. Yeah. I'm going to touch on two, quickly on two topics that have come up a lot. Um, and I think they're especially interesting and relevant for your model. I was speaking with JC Cooper, the head of Medi-Cal Medicaid in California, and she said just the two things that come up and, and seem to be real challenges are workforce mm-hmm and data. How do you grapple with those two areas? What is working? What is not? Um, and then we'll go to our closing questions. So one, I mean, one of the challenges with workforce is the belief that care needs to be delivered at all times by a very expensive, uh, specific specialty clinician. And I think we need as a a society to more embrace uh, non-licensed people who can deliver great care, community health workers, peers, others who can really support and deliver great outcomes. It's similar to social determinants, right? So deliver these other services without burdening the clinical workforce um, by bringing them in. So the way that we're able to make the workforce work, it goes back to value-based reimbursement. If we're paid in a value-based way based on outcomes, we don't have to over-index on psychiatrists. We don't have to over-index on licensed clinical social worker. We love psychiatrists. We have them in our model. We love licensed clinical social workers. We have them in our model. We have MDs. We have advanced practice nurses. We have a range of really well-specialized clinicians, but we also make sure that we utilize our non-licensed teammates because they deliver a great service. Um, they really relate to, to patients and, and help get those high quality outcomes. And so that's one of the things that I'll say about, about workforce is just making sure that we're not always focusing on the licensed folks as the only ones that can deliver care because we know that health outcomes can be delivered by a whole different set of, of individuals who are trained in compassion, who are, who are trained in building trust and trusted relationships and listening and, and all these other different wonderful qualities that can really help to, to, to support people in their health and, and well-being. The workforce during COVID in the, the, you know, the, the specifically clinical workforce, they've gotten burnt out. And so I think we see that. We try to treat our teams with, with grace knowing that the work is hard. It's hard to treat people who are sharing their traumas, who are really supporting people in their most vulnerable moments. Um, Most people who are in our space, they want to deliver care the way that we're delivering it. And so that's part of our sort of secret sauce in our our model. Our closing two questions, the time has flown. 
The first is, what is a leadership lesson you learned the hard way? Gosh, um, a leadership lesson I learned the hard way. Um, I think as a as a as a woman and as a Gen Xer, I often want to just like put my head down and just like do it all myself. <laughs> um, and I think one of the lessons I don't know if I learned it the hard way um, was building a team around me that's better than me um, at so many of the different pieces and being able to really trust them with what is my baby, you know, Eleanor's my baby. And so I think um, learning to, to let go of things, learning to trust others uh, has been, you know, a a leadership lesson um, for me. I think another lesson that I learned early on um, at, uh, at Medicaid where I was um, chief operating officer I went from Bain and Company, which is like, you know, as private sector as it gets to um, to Medicaid and just learning that people were different than me. Right. So people had different motivations. Um, some people work to live. Some people live to work. And so I think understanding as a leader how you create an environment that works for different types of people um, was something that I that I learned early on. I don't know if any of those are, you know, that I learned the hard way. I think any lesson that sticks, typically there's both uh, success and and challenges that inform it. So (laughs) is there any question you wish I had asked that I didn't ask? Yeah, we could have gone down a whole thing on health equity. I'm pretty, I'm pretty, I'm pretty fired up about health equity right now, or we, um, we're doing, we're doing a lot of research and in, you know, looking at our populations, particularly in the outreach work that we do, we're seeing major, um, major closing in some health disparities by nurturing a relationship with somebody. You think about people who are from historically uh, underrepresented groups, they probably don't trust the healthcare system. They might not be raising their hand to get treatment for a very stigmatized condition. And so being able to curate those, those um, relationships and that trust, we're seeing huge health equity gaps closed. So um, next time we'll talk about health equity. Um, I think we're surfacing some really interesting findings. Any any specific data or stats you'd want to share on that? Yeah. So in, a, in our outreach population, um, they are two times as um, non-white. Um, so we're able to, and, and they take three times as long to nurture that relationship. So it takes all that more time to build that trust but once you bring those folks in to, to care, the outcomes are also exponentially better. Um, so those are sort of swaggy numbers, but they, you know the, the, end, the end story is like, it takes a lot of time to build trusted relationships with historically underrepresented groups. So when you do, um, they come in and their outcomes are even better um, than those. So it just shows that that sort of nurturing and that engagement work is incredibly impactful. That's a great, I think, lesson for all of us to end with. And it, it resonates with things I think Abner shared on yes. an earlier episode. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining. I really miss seeing you this spring. And it's lovely to see you, even if it's not in real life. We'll have to figure out a way to do that yeah, soon. Yeah, absolutely. Well, when you're back in D.C., it'll be easier, too. Exactly.
big thank you to Carbon Petro for joining me. Since our conversation, I've been thinking a lot about trust building. Corbin shares some really compelling data about reducing disparities and points out how much time and intention it takes to build the trust we need to close equity gaps. She stresses the power of peers and coaches as part of a recovery model and of building trust. Peers are uniquely able to support healing and recovery through connection and lived expertise. Finally, stigma around substance abuse and mental health is quite literally killing people. Addiction is a chronic condition and is treatable, but the vast majority of people are not getting the help they so desperately need. This podcast was created by me, Claudia Williams. My podcast producer is Avery Moore-Kloss. Check out the show notes for more information on Eleanor Health and our guest, Corbin Petro. There is more information on my background, this podcast, and our guests on our website, www.theother80.com. Until next time, I'm Claudia Williams.